Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vaidyanathan. And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. Day and night in the bitter cold, hundreds of thousands of reform-minded Ukrainians have chanted their candidate's name. Angry that the West-friendly Viktor Yushchenko had been robbed of the presidency. In November 2004, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv and in cities around the country. They did so in a civil resistance movement that soon became known as the Orange Revolution. But tonight they cheered with more hope. In a dramatic move, Ukraine's Supreme Court threw out the official election results, which had declared the Kremlin-backed Prime Minister, Viktor Yanukovych, the winner. The Ukrainian national election had just ended in chaos. There had been widespread evidence of corruption and fraud. But these protests led to a brand new election, and that election changed the course of Ukraine's political history. It sets the stage for a potential Cold War-style competition over Ukraine. Now, Siva, these days, a lot of people, quite understandably, when they think of Ukraine, probably think of, you know, the Russian threats uh, and war and conflict there. Or you might think of the weird, bizarre details of the life and times of Rudy Giuliani, who, as you know, is being investigated right now for his apparent role in shaking down the Ukrainian government for dirt on Joe Biden during the 2020 presidential campaign. But obviously, Ukraine has a much richer, more interesting history than that. And overall, it has a positive story to tell about the course of democracy under very difficult circumstances. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, Ukraine's conflict with Russia over Russia's occupation of Crimea is ongoing. The Kremlin has been backing a war in the eastern region of Donbass, waged by pro-Russian separatists against the government of Ukraine. And yet, Ukraine's institutions have, by all accounts, held... In 2019, Vladimir Zelensky, a comedian-turned-politician, became the country's first Jewish president, winning Ukraine's runoff election against an incumbent, with 73% of the vote. A 41-year-old television comedian with no political experience, now the leader of a country at war with Russia. We did it together. It's an amazing story, and to figure it all out, we've invited historian Serhii Plochi to brief us on the complex history of Ukraine and, and help us make sense of where things are today. Serhii is the director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University and is the author of, among several books, The Last Empire, The Final Days of the Soviet Union. Serhii, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Well, thank you for having me. Serhii, you wrote a general history of Ukraine in 2015 called The Gates of Europe. Why did you write that book and what's the significance of its title? What do you feel is the most important thing that Americans should know about Ukraine right now? Ukraine is a new country on the map of Europe and on the map of the world. Uh, Ukraine got into the news in the United States and worldwide because of the dramatic developments in 2013 and 2014, the Russian annexation of Crimea, the war in Donbass. And what was known about Ukraine uh, before that was known through the uh, narratives that were constructed by the country's powers, elites, 
that ruled over Ukraine for decades and centuries, in particular the Russian narrative, before that Polish narrative, uh, uh, Austria-Hungarian or German. And uh, Ukraine was looked at as a battleground between different uh, countries and, and uh, empires and powers until 18th century or maybe 17th century until today. And there is a good, good reason to think about Ukraine in those terms. But what I wanted to say also that Ukraine is not just a place where the great powers of the world meet and can't agree. Uh, this is also a nation in its own right, the nation that tried uh, to declare independence, to achieve independence five times in the 20th century. So it didn't uh, come out of a blue in 1991. This is the country and the nation that has an agency of its own. And that was uh, the basic message that I wanted to deliver. Sarah, let's talk about that agency that Ukrainians and this nation has, has exercised um, recently. So on this show, we've talked about countries that are having a crisis of democracy, in which there's backsliding, um, in which there's really alarming erosions of democratic norms and rules, and that includes Brazil, Russia, and so on. But it feels as if Ukraine is bucking the trend, as if it lives in a bad neighborhood, but it's managing to improve its democracy, or at least it seems it has done so over the past 15 years or so. I want you to take us back to the Orange Revolution of 2004 and just talk a little bit about what your perceptions of that event were at the time. As a scholar and as an analyst, what did you make of it? What, what was the sense that you had? Was this unprecedented or did you feel, no, this is the Ukrainian people once again trying to stand up for a kind of autonomy? In the 1990s in particular, before 2004, the political scientists, specialists in international relations, referred to Ukraine as a democracy by default. And uh, it turned out to be a good thing because democracies by design really don't work well, and in particular in uh, that neighborhood. And uh, Ukraine emerged as a democratic country for a number of reasons. And one of those was this really very rich and very diverse history of the region, where you have parts of Ukraine that were for decades and centuries uh, within the borders of Austria-Hungary or Poland or the Ottoman Empire or the Russian Empire, and they come with their own sense and understanding of national identity, and they come with their own political traditions. For example, the Western part of Ukraine was more involved in the experience with uh, electoral democracy in Austria-Hungary or in Poland than, for example, central or eastern parts of Ukraine. And all of these regions, they have to find common language. And uh, Ukrainians realized that very early on, in 1993, we have in Russia the bombing of the Russian parliament, rewriting of the Russian constitution, creating a constitution that Vladimir Putin now certainly benefits from. Uh, in Ukraine, there is a, also a crisis, but there are elections, there is no shooting, and there is a constitution that gives a lot of power to the parliament. And uh, in 2004, there was a attempt actually to reverse this democratic course of the development of Ukraine, to steal the elections, to impose elements of authoritarian regime, and the Ukrainians said no. Well, so that we've, we've talked a bit about 2004, the Orange Revolution, 
I mean, that was certainly an inspiring moment for many of us who were able to watch it from afar. Uh, let's hop forward to November 2013, which from our perspective sort of felt and looked similar. At that moment, Ukraine blew up with a major protest movement that's generally referred to as the Maidan or Euro Maidan revolution or demonstrations. Right? Then the government of the president at the moment, Viktor Yanukovych, had made a decision to postpone the signing of an agreement with the European Union that would have signaled closer ties with Europe. But of course, Yanukovych was very close to Moscow, very close to Putin. And these enormous protests erupted, right? And, and ultimately led to the ouster of Yanukovych. So that seemed to be a high point, but things haven't turned out so good since then. Could you tell us what else, what are we missing from this story? What's happened since? What has been the ultimate effect of the Maidan demonstrations of 2013? Uh, there are clear parallels between the events in 2004 and uh, then 2013, uh, but there are also differences. The uh, events of 2013 ended up in violence, the first violence uh, in Ukrainian history since it became independent. I remember with regard to the Orange Revolution of 2004, uh, some of my friends were saying, what is wrong with you Ukrainians? Uh, you can't have a protest that wouldn't look like a street party. Uh, and that certainly street party, that peaceful process, that festival of, of freedom came to an end in 2013. The events had two layers. One layer got uh, this name uh, in the term used to define those events as Euro Revolution or Euro Maidan. That was about orientation toward Europe. Another layer got its name in the name Revolution of Dignity because Ukrainians showed in mass on the main street of Kyiv after the police beat up the students. And that, that was the red line for the majority of Ukrainians that they refused to stay at home. Will not allow any government to treat us and our children like they were treated. We will not allow the government to do what the government wants to do. No, I just, I want to pick up on that because I'm, I'm struck by this tradition of mobilization in the face of of violence, of police brutality, uh, of uh, maybe of, of of authoritarian tendencies. Where does Ukraine get this sense of civil society and civil mobilization after having lived in the Soviet Union for so long uh, under terrible conditions? What is this, the the source of this ability to mobilize uh, against authoritarian regimes? Well, uh, in my book, The Gates of Europe, I, I uh, write that Ukrainians are excellent and accomplished rebels and uh, lousy state builders. <laughs> so you, you, Ukraine historically lived under foreign rule and control for, for centuries. Uh, Ukraine is also the place that is known through the Cossacks, and Cossacks are known uh, through their rebellions and revolts against the empire. Ukraine produced the largest anarchist movement and of uh, Nestor Makhno, the, the biggest peasant army in the Russian empire during the revolution. So in terms of mobilization against the state, Ukraine never had any problem at all. So what we see now after 2013 and 2014 and this ongoing uh, military conflict and war going on in Donbass and war with Russia effectively is that Ukrainians for the first time started to mobilize around their state. And this is a big, big change historically. But in terms of uh, standing up to their rights, uh, Ukrainian history is, is, is full of examples like that. 
I love that that notion of being great rebels, but lousy state builders. That's, right, that's right. kind of a romantic, but appealing uh, national and we've seen it characteristic, right? You, you've mentioned the Russian story a little bit. Let me just uh, come to that. So following the, the Maidan uh, revolution, Russia invades Ukraine and Crimea, and then eventually annexes Crimea. Why? What, what was going on in that conflict? Well, indeed, this is unprecedented in uh, European history, at least since since World War II. The closest parallels would be the Anschluss of Austria and uh, the uh, taking over of Sudetenland. So that's that's where the historical parallels are when you think about uh, Crimea or you think about Donbass. And uh, the main reason for Russia uh, going all the way, and at least on two occasions sending its regular army into the battle, not just uh, supporting the revolt and rebellion, is that Ukraine is central for the Russian project and the Russian identity on a number of levels. One is national identity and history. Uh, the majority of Russians believe that the origins of Russian state are in Kiev. And uh, Putin went on record more than once saying that Ukrainians and Russians are the same people. What he means is not that he and the Russians are Ukrainians. What he means is that the Ukrainians allegedly are Russians. So that is, that is one level of complexity. Another one is that the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991 after Ukrainian referendum for independence, December 1st. Ukrainians didn't vote to dissolve the Soviet Union. They couldn't care less about what is happening with the rest of the Soviet Union. They voted for their independence. But their independence meant for Russia and for others that the Soviet Union is gone. It was dissolved within one week after that referendum because uh, Ukraine turned out to be the second largest Soviet republic. Russia wasn't prepared to continue the experiment with the Soviet Union without the second largest partner. And today, Russia's attempts to re-establish its control of the post-Soviet space uh, are facing enormous problems if Ukraine is not on board. That is why you see the level of escalation, the level of brutality, really breaking any, any international law standards and uh, creating a new historic precedent. Serhii, why has the annexation of Crimea been allowed to stand, this defiant act? Why has there not been adequate international response? There was uh, very little international response, despite the fact that uh, in accordance with the Budapest Memorandum, after Ukraine gave up uh, its part of the Soviet nuclear arsenal, there were assurances given by Russia, United States, UK about the territorial integrity of Ukraine and sovereignty of Ukraine. And of course, all of that was violated. The lukewarm response that followed, in my opinion, is the indication that the world actually was not prepared at all. And uh, there was also another thinking in terms that the majority of the population in the Crimea were ethnic Russians. So it was almost like the West was looking at Germany's behavior in uh, Czechoslovakia with Sudetenlands that, okay, yes, it was done uh, in violation of all international rules, but maybe there is a bigger truth about that given that the majority are ethnic Russians. And then the idea was that it was uh, an exception. It was one-time thing. This is not an indication of the trend in general. This is Russia gathering Russians and Russian citizens, and uh, Russia will not go further. 
And that certainly perception changed with Donbass, with Syria, and it turned out that this very, very indecisive response to the Crimea opened door for much more aggressive policy uh, of Russia, not only in Ukraine, but worldwide. So we've seen, and we've talked about now, uh, conventional military intervention. We've uh, discussed political machinations and political interference in the, uh, the, the workings of Ukrainian democracy coming from Moscow. Uh, but there's another level to this, of course, and that is the cyber war that uh, Ukraine has faced from Russia for nearly a decade now. I, you know, in many ways, this the tactics of the cyber war were first practiced on Estonia. I think Ukraine gets the the harshest version of it. But of course, the Russian tactics at cyber war, both interfering in computer networks and computer servers and flooding internet sites with misinformation, disinformation, etc., seems to be happening in much of Eastern Europe, happening in France, happening in Italy, and of course, notoriously in the United States. What has it been like in Ukraine to face this disinformation war, this cyber war? Well, uh, the annexation of the Crimea and then the war in Donbass was prepared by this cyber war. And uh, really the influence that the Russian TV channels and uh, Russia supported channels in Ukraine and in Ukrainian information space. So uh, before anyone was talking about this warfare, Ukrainians already had on the TV channels a program that was called Stop Fake. So with a special program dedicated to the issue, okay, that's, that's what we hear, that's the reality, that's what we're dealing with. Ah, like inoculation, inoculation against uh, what they expect. Right, right. And, and again, the question is how effective it was. It was effective in some regions with some categories of population, less effective with others. Uh, but it even got into the field of history and history writing, where there was a popular history and popular history site that was uh, created to educate people about history. So this is one side of the story. Another side of the story is, of course, cyber attacks. And uh, we don't know yet everything about the colonial pipeline. Again, the fingers are pointed at Russia. If this is the case, I just want to say that before the colonial uh, pipeline, there was the uh, shutdown in the same way of the um, energy systems in Ukraine. And it was two or three years ago. So it looks like that Ukraine serves as, as a polygon for Russia to test their uh, cyber muscles and also uh, to conduct international warfare. So that front is open. The conflict is not over. But it's also very interesting how Ukrainians react to that. And uh, at the very beginning, there were really serious doubts and debates whether the Ukrainian government should create a special ministry dealing with information and misinformation, really in the middle of the war. The part of the society was strongly against that because they looked at that as the possibility, as a temporary measure that could become permanent in terms of the really reducing the, the space of freedom in, in the Ukrainian informational uh, space. You know, uh, Serhi, you will know far better than most people the, the rather vulgar line attributed to Nikita Khrushchev that, uh, that Berlin was the testicles of the West. And whenever he wanted to make the West scream, he would squeeze on Berlin. 
And I can't help but think that Putin thinks something of, of, of Ukraine in the same role, that whenever he wants to make the West worry, to make the Germans worry, uh, to make the Americans fret, he can push on the Ukraine issue. I mean, isn't this what Putin's game is? Ukraine is a, is a button he can push whenever he wants to get back at the West a little bit. Or are the stakes higher than that? Well, well, this is a great parallel. Of course, I, I, I know that saying by Khrushchev, but I never, never really connected it and thought in those terms about Ukraine. But you, you are absolutely right. Because uh, what we see in Ukraine, it's not just war on Ukraine. It's not just an attempt to reestablish uh, Moscow's control over the post-imperial, post-Soviet space. It's also war on, on the West in, in broad terms. Uh, uh, that includes Europe and that includes certainly the United States. The recent uh, so-called maneuvers uh, on the Ukrainian borders clearly fit the, the model that you are describing. This is an attempt to get noticed again uh, and a threat not only to Ukraine in terms of the possible invasion, but also threat to Europe and to the uh, United States. So this is something that becomes maybe better understood now than it was back in 2014, 2015. And uh, this mobilization of the forces on the Ukrainian borders happened also after President Biden agrees with the question that uh, Putin uh, is a killer. Uh, so I would like to say that again, I can't agree more with Khrushchev's metaphor and with your parallel. <laughs> Well, so we've we, on this program we have talked a bit about um, far right parties, often authoritarian parties, rising in Germany, uh, in France, and of course we've talked at length about the transformation of the Republican Party in the United States into uh, essentially an anti-democratic force. Is there a similar domestic, you know, homegrown party or movement in Ukraine that echoes many of the xenophobic, um, perhaps anti-Semitic positions that these other parties take? Uh, or are all of Ukraine's anti-democratic threats coming from Moscow? Well, the, uh, there is no question that the main threats are coming from Moscow. Certainly, there exist in Ukraine this right-wing groups which parallel developments in Europe and, and to a degree in the United States as well. They're very visible, very loud, but extremely marginal force in Ukraine. They can't get into parliament in Ukraine. They can't cross the 5% threshold. So that they're not present at all in the Ukrainian political space in that sense. Uh, the uh, Ukrainian security services believe that some of these right-wing groups actually are funded by Russia. And the, the point is to have a good photo op. Uh, the reality is, again, as I said, that those groups are extremely marginal. Another card that has been played is anti-Semitism in Ukraine. And uh, not to be cavalier in any way about the anti-Semitism in any country, or not to discard very difficult relationship between Ukrainians and the Jews historically. Uh, anti-Semitism is not something that is basically part of the identity or thinking of absolute majority of Ukrainians. Otherwise, Ukraine would not have the only Jewish president outside of Israel. 
Volodymyr Zelensky is uh, probably quite unique in Ukrainian history that he maintains that level of popularity. So again, I don't want to say that anti-Semitism is not a problem at all, but I, I want to say that actually Ukraine after 1991 really demonstrates the level of tolerance, of acceptance of, of non-Ukrainian groups and cultures that uh, quite unique for the region and certainly certainly quite new in terms of Ukrainian history. That is a very positive, very positive development. Again, Ukraine was able to survive in 2014 because an alliance was created across the national linguistic and religious lines, alliance between Russian speakers, Ukrainian speakers, Jews, Ukrainians, in defense of Ukraine. If that would not happen, we would not talk about Ukraine in its today's borders. Sergei, despite all of the challenges, problems, war, revolutions that Ukraine has faced in the last decade and more, democracy seems to be deeply enough rooted that it can actually flourish. It is showing signs of growing and becoming uh, stronger in Ukraine. Zelensky for once has a party big enough so that he has a mandate to govern and his cabinet is made up of many young people. The new parliament is made up of a lot of new figures in politics. Is this a sign that a new generation has taken root in Ukraine and that Ukrainian politics can look forward to moving away from the the ghosts and the corruption and, and so forth of the past. What is the significance of Zelensky's tenure so far for, for democracy in Ukraine? Well, first of all, clearly there is generational change in Ukrainian politics. And uh, uh, there were high hopes during the first year of Zelensky's tenure. But for a number of reasons, this uh, trend actually didn't continue into Zelensky's second year. So the government was fired. Uh, partially because it didn't have much of experience and also mishandled certain things, partially because there was a strong pushback from vested interests and oligarchic interests in Ukraine. So the jury is out there to see whether the promise that came with the new generation, with the arrival of Zelensky, of really reshaping Ukrainian government, reshaping Ukrainian society, whether they will deliver on that promise. There were uh, concerns during the first year of Zelensky's rule that, again, as you said, he got the party strong enough to control the entire parliament. And that was unprecedented in Ukrainian history. The questions and, and the voices were coming, okay, maybe we are witnessing the rise of the new authoritarian rule. That really turned out to be an unjustified concern. So yes, it's it's the, the, the party is there. They still run the country or rule without coalition, but there are groups and there are divisions within the party itself. So it's as pluralistic as any other parliament. So again, the concerns about democracy turned out to be unfounded. Concerns about what will happen in terms of the fight on corruption, they still with us today. And, and what do you think about the long-term prospects and stability in Ukraine? I mean, right now, uh, there seem to be 100,000 Russian troops on the border. And we know that, you know, Ukraine faces so many choices in continuing. You know, should, should Ukraine attempt to be uh, better integrated with Europe economically and politically? And what would it cost Ukraine to do that? Uh, how do you feel about the, the long-term prospects? Well, I feel very positive about long-term prospects. 
The standard formula for the creation of a nation is really revolt against an empire. And this is exactly what is happening now in Ukraine since 2013, 2014. So war brings a lot, a lot of suffering, death, economic hardship, but uh, war also helps Ukrainians or the majority of Ukrainians to, to define themselves and to appreciate the importance of their state. I mentioned before that, that Ukrainians are great rebels, so now there is appreciation of the state and, and perception of the state that it is our state. It is not somebody else's state, somebody else's government imposed on us. So from that point of view, there is a major historical turn in Ukraine, and that's what it takes to be a nation. Uh, short term, I am really very concerned. I'm really very concerned about the, the potential war, about uh, the corruption, uh, about the reluctance of Europe in particular to play more important role in, in support of reforms in Ukraine, defense of Ukraine. Uh, so I'm very optimistic long term. Uh, I'm, I'm very concerned short term. Well, uh, Sari Plochi, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy in Danger. It was a real pleasure. Thanks again for having me. That was Serhi Plochi, professor of Ukrainian history at Harvard University. He's the author most recently of Chernobyl, the history of a nuclear catastrophe. And he's the director of Harvard's Ukrainian Research Institute. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all of our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends. This is Larry Lessig. For the past 15 years, I've done absolutely everything I possibly can to help build the movement to get Congress to pass fundamental reform of our broken, some might say, I think I said, corrupted democracy. But of all the things I've done, certainly the most fun has been the podcast Another Way, produced by Equal Citizens. If you're enjoying the podcast you're listening to right now, then I can almost guarantee you're going to love Another Way. You can find us, you know how this works, at every single podcast feed that there is. This is Larry Lessig. Thanks for listening to this pitch. Steve, so I teach the history of World War II to UVA students, and we go over the issue of appeasement a lot. You know, that's the time when Britain and France uh, did nothing to stop Hitler as he was beginning his aggression and, and slowly carving up, gobbling up Austria and then parts of Czechoslovakia before the Second World War actually exploded. And students always ask, as they should ask, why didn't the West do something? Why didn't they save these small democratic countries from the, the vicious Nazi monster? Don't they know that appeasement only leads to more aggression? And now here in Ukraine, we sort of see something similar unfolding. Russia is using claims of ethnicity and, and history to assert its right to dismember Ukraine. And the West is not really doing much at all. Why not? Well, the answer is the same now as it was then. The West doesn't want war with Russia. The cost is too high. But, you know, the danger of that is the old lesson of appeasement, that, you know, aggression can lead to more aggression. And Putin is clearly testing America. He's clearly testing Europe. He's testing the West. And right now it's been contained. But unless Putin gets a very stern message, and that's 
And that's dangerous. It can lead to a, a, a kind of turning away from these small democratic experiments that are very much in the interests of the West to support. So it's a real dilemma. Look, if, if Ukraine moves closer to the European Union uh, and moves closer to NATO, uh, you know, that invokes a moral obligation, if not a legal obligation, for European countries and perhaps the United States and Canada to do what they can to protect Ukraine, to bolster democracy in Ukraine. And the thing is, the toolkit is broader than military action. The toolkit involves and includes economic support, uh, better, better uh, cultural interaction, right? We could, we could do a better job of student exchange and scholarly exchange and journalistic exchange. We could do a better job in this country of getting people to recognize Ukraine as its own country, its own civilization, uh, as something that doesn't just shudder in the shadow of an aggressor neighbor. That's the real value of what Sergei is telling us and, and what we can actually learn from Ukraine. So all of that can be part of supplementing uh, any effort to strengthen the institutions of Ukraine, which clearly have popular support. I think the stakes are enormously high in the Ukrainian case. I think that we, the United States, and Western Europe is, in fact, already in a, in a state of war with Russia. And I say that not lightly, but because we have to reconceptualize in the 21st century what war really looks like. It's pretty clear that Russian uh, bad actors were behind the shutdown of the colonial pipeline that basically crippled the southeast of the United States for a couple of weeks. Now, we don't know if that was Putin's direct order, but connect the dots. And we're in a state of, of conflict with Russia. It's a geopolitical conflict. It's not an ideological one. It's about how far Russian power can extend, both in the East and in the West. And so Ukraine is just one front. There's a cyber war front. There's a, a Ukrainian front. There's the, the cyber activity of Russia in Europe itself. Uh, there's a conflict over energy and the flow of natural gas. That's um, another way of Putin to exercise power over Europe. And so my guess is that the United States, behind closed doors, already views the stakes in Ukraine as very high, but they also don't want to trigger an open conflict, a ground war uh, with, with Ukraine, and probably for that reason doesn't want Ukraine in NATO, which would, as you say, commit the United States to backing up NATO militarily. But that shouldn't blind us to the stakes of this case. It's, this is really the, the tripwire for democracy in the West. That's all we have this week on Democracy in Danger. Next time, we'll pivot directly to Russia and speak with New Yorker staff writer Masha Gessen, who knows firsthand what oppression and resistance there looks like. I left Russia at the end of 2013 with my family because the government was threatening to take my adopted son out of the family, and by implication also threatening the biological kids because they were being raised by a lesbian couple. We have some news for you. Our second season will be wrapping up soon, but we have more in store for you coming this fall, including some very deep dives on democratic crises, social movements, and revolutions around the world and across time. Now, if you have any ideas for any of these stories, let us know. We're on Twitter at DND Podcast. That's at D-I-N-D Podcast. Or you can go to dindanger.org and leave a comment on any of our show pages. 
Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell and Jane Frankel. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>